0: Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods in practice. On this episode of the Give Methods a Chance podcast, we're joined by Dr. Andrew Billings. Andrew is the Ronald Reagan Endowed Chair in Broadcasting in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. He has authored books on a range of topics, including fantasy sport and coverage of the Olympic Games. His scholarship has also attracted interest outside academic walls, from mainstream outlets ranging from the Boston Globe to the Los Angeles Times GSBN.com. We talked to Andrew about his use of quantitative content analysis to study traditional and social media coverage of NBA player Jason Collins coming out as gay. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I think this is a terrific podcast to be a part of. So we're here to talk about quantitative content analysis. If you were to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you go about describing it?
1: Well, I think the big thing is that content analysis is about describing what exists. It's not about establishing causation. It's not about being able to say why something exists. Content analysis is there largely to help us explain texts or sets of data in a way that we can then navigate and potentially even use other methods for that. Now, I tend to use quantitative content analysis because I'll tell people, at its core, what I do is I study gaps. Uh, Often, if I do gender research, that's gaps between how men are portrayed and how women are portrayed in the media. But it's really gaps between anything, uh, between an actual percentage and a perceived percentage, between Americans and non-Americans. Or in this case, uh, you're looking at gaps between different forms of media. So quantitative content analysis allows us to run difference tests to establish whether those
0: gaps are meaningful to the point that we feel that we would find those consistently over time. So we have an example when we talk about this method. I was hoping we could use your recent research that you conducted with Lee Moskowitz, Coral Ray, and Natalie Brown Devlin on the traditional and social media frames that surrounded the NBA player Jason Collins after he came out as gay. So what were your central research questions or driving topical interest when you were conducting this project?
1: Well, it was interesting because usually there's one central thrust of the research, and here really there were two. Uh, The first, of course, was to look specifically at the evolution of the gay athlete to see how media portrays gay athletes. I think it's interesting, especially in regard to the gay athletes uh, that have come out recently within sports media, it's, it's both seen as a first hurdle and a last hurdle. It's a, it's a first hurdle in that people like Jason Collins were the first in a given sport or a given team sport to openly come out while playing. But also then it's seen as this last hurdle for equality for uh, GL, uh, GLBTQ athletes. Uh, So, you know, really that was one main thrust, but then there was this other angle, which was we wanted to look at two different platforms, one from legacy media, in this case newspapers, and one from social media, in this case Twitter, to see over the course of that first week, how did those themes play out differently over time. Uh, So that was really interesting to see how they cross-pollinate, and also over the course of time, do those themes shift, and we certainly found shifts within this research.
0: What was your methodological design to get at those questions?
1: Well, it was quantitative uh, content analysis, but with slight alterations. And what I mean there is newspapers obviously function different uh, than twi- tweets that we have on Twitter in a couple of key ways. First of all, newspaper stories are written uh, by journalists. So you can really say, uh, you know, within that database, here's how journalists portrayed that. Twitter. Uh, you have some limitations. Uh, obviously, the 140 character limitation uh, limits the number of themes that could come out within any one unit of analysis, which was a tweet. But even more than that, uh, simply which hashtags you use can be critical when trying to understand uh, you know, what's pertinent or what's pertinent for analysis within social
0: media. So this might be a bit of a more difficult question, but when you were designing this study, which came first for you? Did you have a topic and then you sought out the method that would work, or did you have a methodological approach in mind and then you saw a topic that made sense for it?
1: Well, this was a topic that you could see coming. Uh, we'd heard rumors about different athletes coming out. There had been a rumor, for instance, that there was a group of four NFL players that were going to come out as a group to kind of you know, show solidarity, but also share, I think, the burden of being the first within a given sport that obviously hasn't happened but uh, the moment we heard that Jason Collins was coming out had released this major cover story written in first person in Sports Illustrated the race was on I remember uh, I had a friend on Facebook who posted that morning saying okay the race is on for someone to to get the first Jason Collins piece out there
0: I remember those conversations as well
1: yeah there there was a there was a shelf life for this so we needed to jump on that and that actually uh, caused us to look at at some things in, in a different way. You had
0: to respond to that right away. Did you consider other methodological approaches, especially considering a rush to get something out? You consider some, but then you have to roll
1: them out real quickly. So we came to content analysis pretty quickly. For instance, would, you, would I have loved to survey people right after that to see what their responses were? Yes, but at the time, we didn't have any survey even started with uh, the IRB. Uh, So without human subjects approval, we were going to lose any window we had to get a real time shot at, you know, discovering how people are responding to that. Uh, So I think that would have gotten us more generalizability than, for instance, with Twitter. But at the same time, there was no real way to get at that. There was also a time sensitivity to this in that, uh, you know, it was unfolding quickly. And even though newspapers can be looked up over time, uh, tweets, uh, believe it or not, don't have the ability, at least at that time, uh, to be archived way in the past. So it's it's not like you can go back and look a couple years ago to see how did this uh, you know unfold on Twitter. Uh, eventually, those those disappear. We we certainly have more programs than we did two years ago that can start to collect things here. We have a professor here who now has a program that can collect, and you know, for instance, he's collecting something on every single uh, pro baseball player this year. So the minute any deviance happens, then immediately that program is collecting that information. Uh, we didn't have that capacity there. So we needed to be able to jump on how things were unfolding on Twitter and do so right away. And because of the last lack of IRB, uh, content analysis lets us get at that instantaneously.
0: What was your strategy for gathering data and what was your sampling approach considering The abundance of data you must have when you're drawing from more traditional media and online uh, Twitter responses. Right. right. So
1: with with newspapers, it's a bit easier. You have an aggregator uh, for us. That was LexisNexis, the database uh, that that gives us those those stories. And then we can run keyword searches in this case, uh, you know, keywords for Jason Collins during that week. If you do Jason Collins MBA, you're pretty much going to get every story that you need. And no one else was talking about any other aspect of Jason Collins that week beyond his announcement. Twitter, it's a lot harder uh, because, yes, there are hashtags, but sometimes those hashtags are superfluous. Sometimes if there's a trending hashtag, which, you know, hashtag Jason Collins was, uh, then uh, certain other companies are going to use that hashtag as a way to promote their products to get you looking at at content that you wouldn't otherwise look at. So you have to avoid that. The other thing is, is with, uh, with Twitter, uh, they're very short, they're easy to code, but at the same time you have so many uh, instances or tweets to look at that that can get overwhelming. So for the case here, what we did was we ended up with a universe of investigation of over 40,000 tweets and decided there was no way we could in a timely manner look at each of those or really need to look at each of those. We thought every fifth tweet would be more appropriate and so that sample became roughly 8,000 tweets that we could look at and we thought that was enough to get overall trend lines even with that short limitation of 140 characters.
0: Did you face any barriers when you're collecting the data or was there anything that went wrong? Well
1: I, I think one barrier and this is certainly true I think with more and more social media is there's an incredible amount of, it's not really negativity, I wouldn't say. I mean, there is negativity out there, but but coding for sarcasm uh, can be really tricky. And that's the reason why we can't use, with most of the work I do, I can't send it through a content analysis software program because inevitably it's going to code things differently than the way they come out. So if if there's a tweet, I don't know, that says something like, I'm so glad we have people like Jason Collins sharing their bedroom habits with us. All right. Well, you know, you, you have to take a look at the context of that and say, are they really glad or is this, <laughs> you know, is this something that they're saying, you know, should not be shared?
0: Would you look at other, what, uh, other tweets that they wrote to try to get a sense of the context or would you just go simply by that message?
1: If, if we needed that, then we would look at other tweets. The other thing that really could help us lots of times were the hashtags. So, you know, in that example I gave you, there might be a hashtag that says TMI for too much information. At that point, then it becomes very easy to code. Uh, So so lots of times they will, you know, I I think lots of times even with sarcasm, people on a social media platform are going to make sure that they've given some little tip of the hat to what their core intent was. Uh, so that helps us a lot. But if we need more context, then we can look at the, the context to see generally what kind of stream of information they're offering.
0: That's great. That's something I had not thought of at all when considering yeah. coding tweets. Um, are there any other particular practical details or maybe tricks of the trade that you could share about conducting this type of analysis?
1: Well, I, I think one big thing is, especially with a case like this, which is very unique, it's not like we had previous cases that looked a lot like how Jason Collins came out to the media, um, you're going to be using open coding. We we didn't know going in what our categories were going to be. We didn't apply a specific taxonomy. In cases like that, when you do your initial coding of say 10% of the sample, the goal is to have as many categories as possible. If that means you have 47 categories, you have 47 categories because you can always, and you will, go in and collapse those but to get a sense of the entire universe of here are the different categories that we have is incredibly useful it's always easier to collapse categories than it is to try and subdivide those back out so uh it's better to start from many and work to few than from few and work to many
0: and you use the same categories for looking at traditional say newspaper article versus a short uh something on twitter that you found
1: we did. We combined those two there and we said, uh, you know, because I mean, the, the core theory here that we're looking at is framing. And uh, there are frames of selection, there are frames of emphasis, but there are also frames of exclusion. So if there was one category that was emerging more prevalently in one platform than the other, you still want to be coding for that other platform to ensure it's not there. So you can really talk about how one platform excluded or did not Tend to utilize a given framework where another one did, and so you know it's not just about what's there; it's about what's not there.
0: How did you go about analyzing the data, and what techniques did you employ?
1: You know, the first thing you have to you know really ensure is proper intercoder reliability. So uh, we had two coders on this research team. One that you know, well, first of all, they they went through that ten percent of the coding to determine categories. The four of us sat down and looked at those categories. What can we collapse? What can we work from? Again, probably I think we had six or seven more categories than ultimately we ended up with in the journal article. But then we, uh, from there, we made sure we had two coders that uh, one was responsible for newspaper coding, one was responsible for uh, coding the tweets, and then uh, crossed those over and did uh, 12.5% more intercoder reliability where they would code each other's work without looking you know you want independence of that coding there to ensure that you've got a good reliability within that i think the other thing you had to work for was the number of themes you would code for so within newspapers obviously a newspaper article could be 500 600 words or longer uh, so they would have multiple themes Uh, Tweets could have multiple themes, but it's it's a lot harder to in such a you know concise area. So we coded for the first three themes that would come up uh, within these uh, newspapers. Almost always had at least three themes that came up. Tweets rarely did. I think on average we had one point one or one point two themes per tweet. So very rarely did they try and walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, st- statistically, you know, this wasn't a whole lot of heavy statistics. Largely. It was chi-squares to, you know, measure difference tests, for instance, uh, you know, the percentage of articles or tweets that gave voice directly to Jason Collins by directly quoting him or referencing the Sports Illustrated article. And then it was, uh, you know, we we were limited in what we could do uh, statistically with this. So the best we could do correlation-wise to see whether these platforms were matching up was to do a uh, rank order correlation using a Spearman row. Uh, that allows us to see to what degrees are these themes
0: correlating within the two platforms. When students are first learning research methods, they hear a lot about generalizability and validity. How did these factor into your project and, and this type of methodology?
1: Well, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's important to know what you are not. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, what this is is much less generalizable than the type of work I tend to do. And that's because of the unique case of Jason Collins. Uh, But, but, you know, identifying that, yes, this is a single case. There were none directly a comparison like him. And also knowing what you're not in terms of uh, Twitter, which is uh, often argued to be a representative sample of America when it most clearly is not, Um, you know, roughly 9% of Americans are actively on Twitter. uh, And it's, it's, even beyond the 80-20 rule, it's more like a 90-10 rule where where uh, 90 percent of the tweets are being offered by 10 percent of the population within there, which means that 9 out of every 10 tweets you're hearing from are coming from that 1 percent of the population that's really into it. Um, So it's important to know that this is not necessarily a barometer for things. A good example in a previous research I had was when we were looking at uh, coverage of NBC's Olympics uh, in 2012 in London, and the hashtag NBC fail started trending day after day. And and uh, people said, oh, this is a disaster. And then the first ratings came in and they were up. Uh, and and people said, how do you live that disconnect? And the answer is, well, Twitter's not generalizable for the general public. And uh, and it's also the case that you know when people are tweeting NBC fail, that means they're watching NBC to see them fail, to... <laughs> to have some sort of gripe there. Now, what is generalizable, and I hope people get out of this, though, is the sense that you can measure more than one platform at a given time and you can find ways to see whether they correlate or areas in which they diverge. And I think that is useful for integrated media analysis, which I think we need to do a lot more of as a lot of those partitions are are taken down
0: that's really fascinating so it's the method itself that's generalizable as much as the findings that you're you're getting through using the method
1: right i I don't want anyone to say well here's how a game athlete will be perceived in the media if they come out because there's a unique set of circumstances here you've got a person in a given sport if he came out in football it might be different in baseball it might be different it might be different if his race were different it might be different if he were 5 foot 11 to 6 foot 11 where he's you know there there are all sorts of aspects of him that make it very hard to apply to any other future case that may come
0: another thing that undergraduates learn about when they're first in their in their first research methodology class is the positionality of the researcher did this play any role in the research process or design especially considering that it was a more quantitative approach quantitative really helps you a lot with that
1: and, you know, you need intercoder reliability. You need multiple people to say, yes, this is exactly what is going on here. But you do still, you know, for instance, in our analysis, you have the the quantitative analysis, but you also have specific examples that you can offer. And you have to make sure that you're not giving the megaphone to the person in the corner, you know, in the corner just who is the clear minority. And that can happen a lot on Twitter. It happens within mainstream media where lots of times I'll say, why are you posting on CNN from a guy with seven followers who could reach more people by shouting at a local pharmacy. Uh, but, but overall, you, you work through that false equivalency. You try and say, here were the general trend lines. So here we could say the general trend lines were most people within sports media and within the NBA itself were very supportive of Jason Collins. But then give one example. I guess the example we used was ESPN's Chris Boussard, uh, who was less positive on that but not to dwell on those too much. I, I do think positionality is important in a case like this where I think there's a clear evolution where people can see a clear momentum going in one direction. Uh, I, I think even people who might have issues with uh, the, the gay rights movement uh, are going to, you know, at, at least somewhat agree that 20 years from now, this isn't a conversation, <laughs> I, I, you know, the momentum is toward quality. Uh, the momentum is toward uh, being more inclusive. The momentum is against uh, some of the homophobia. So, yeah, that's, you know, and clearly we're positioned where we we want to be able to take uh, a stance that has some level of ab- advocacy because, you know, in many ways you want to be on the right side of history. But at the same time, if if the content doesn't show that, then what you're doing there is showing here's where we currently stand. And even if you're an advocate for gay issues, then you need to have a way to say, here are the issues we still have. And content analysis really helps you define what those issues are.
0: So did you have an intended audience in mind when you were designing the research project?
1: I I mean, certainly the, uh, you know, the, the we knew it was going to be of interest to people within journalism and mass media. We also knew that it was going to hopefully get some interest from people who are into uh, GLBTQ movements and uh, that kind of research. I will say this was a case where we wanted to make sure it was written as accessibly as possible because we thought we would get a fair bit or at least have a better chance at mainstream media coverage for this. This is the kind of thing that people tend to pick up on a little more. That has been the case so far since it just came out. I'm doing a few more interviews. Uh, Of this type or with newspapers or things like that where they want to know okay What's specifically going on with these topics and being able to untangle that in a way? That is accessible is important to them So uh, and content analysis is very good for that, too So at least you're not saying well we conducted multiple regression and X number of percentage of this deviation is explainable by y And and, then start to lose people so this is something that most journalists can follow
0: and that's been very useful Would you be willing to share one of your core findings or uh, sociological contributions?
1: There were actually a couple of them that I think were really interesting. Number one was that the, the mediums played out in very different ways. So newspapers over time got deeper with the story. Twitter got wider. What I mean there is newspapers often day one were just like Twitter. They were breaking the news of the story. Uh, by day three or day four or day five, they had already started to look at untangling the harder issues of the story, where, which were, okay, does Jason Collins's blackness play into uh, the way he has grown up or his decisions to, to come out? Uh, does the fact that he's openly religious, uh, what role does that play in both his personal reality and the story he has to say, especially coming from a very religious family? So they're going into deeper issues of civil rights, things like that. Twitter, on the other hand, uh, was really effective at breaking the news to people, to tell them, here's what's going on. So it happened very, very rapidly there. Uh, But, and Twitter was also much more likely to cross-pollinate into newspapers. So newspapers were very likely to say, Kobe Bryant tweeted support to Jason Collins. Uh, The inverse was, much less likely to happen where Twitter was saying, hey, look at what the newspapers are saying. But over time Twitter became much much more scattershot to the point that by we're in by the time we're in day six or day seven, even if we had all of these different categories, the category that was most used was other, uh, which was these things are unclassifiable. These are hey, we need to get Jason Collins on Oprah or you know you know <laughs> things like that that we just didn't have classifications for. They almost, There were a lot of jokes and things like that, and if those jokes had a specific frame, we could analyze them, but often they didn't, and so you really had to work through there. So that was one key finding, I think, is that newspapers got deeper over time, whereas Twitter did not. Uh, Another thing that I'll mention real quickly, though, is we really wanted to see how much voice Jason Collins was given to the unfolding of his own story. And uh, whereas it started with roughly 50% of the comments on both platforms were quoting Jason Collins or directly referencing the SI article, that got cut you know, by half over time to the point that gradually he lost some of his first person voice within the story, which I think is natural, but it's still important to be able to delineate the differences or the, the magnitude in which that voice is gradually lost within media circles.
0: And that happened both with the traditional media and with when and when quoting Twitter as well.
1: Yes, yes. So gradually over time, yeah. And like I said, it's natural. You get further and further away from the story. You've already, you know, even if you've read and you know read the story, you know, from beginning to end, uh, you aren't necessarily still quoting from that days later. You want to quote from something else. You want to advance the story rather than dwell on it. And I think when you advance the story. Uh, you inevitably move further away from your source material which in this case was the si article
0: earlier you shared some wise words with us that it's just as important to know what you're not as what you are so considering that what are some of the limitations of this approach
1: one limitation that especially if i give an interview people always say okay so here's what you found why and uh, content analysis doesn't tell you why uh, as i mentioned earlier it doesn't tell you causation you can't say here's the reason why it happened you can hypothesize that uh you you can work through that uh but but at the same time you simply have to say i am describing what exists that what that at its core is what content analysis is it's describing what it exists and trying to find a way to classify it in a way that is accessible and useful uh, for people to comprehend. So certainly that's one limitation. The other one, which I've also referenced here, is generalizability in that many times what you want is you want to come up with a series of cases or you know, dozens of cases where you could say, okay, what common themes happen within these coming out stories or something like that. Um, certainly we have plenty of research and plenty of access to different coming out stories, but the bottom line is Jason Collins' is story is incredibly unique. Uh, that's, that's why it resonated with the masses. And so to combine that with any other type of story seems to be a limitation somewhat.
0: As a way of concluding, let's go back to that imaginary undergraduate classroom that we started with. And I was hoping you could give some final words where you really say, what, what are the main selling points of this approach? Or why would someone choose quantitative content analysis of all the options, all the methodological options that are out there?
1: Well, I think often content analysis works really well because it's a step one. And many people want to move on to like step four or step five to to try and get into the, the Byzantine complexities of some issues. But the bottom line is content analysis often works well uh, as a step one to say, all right, we, before we figure out why something exists or what the effects are, uh, of something existing, we have to know what exists. Uh, because many times what we think is going on isn't what's actually going on. So so before you can prove that a given news source is biased in one way or, or the other, or that a given story is playing out in this way in one way or the other, you have to make sure it actually is. Uh, going back to that NBC fail example, you <laughs> before, before you can go on to, okay, what was the effect of this? You know, with NBC fail, you have to say overall... Did NBC fail uh, or did the ratings play out with that? So so certainly being able to define what exists helps set up even other methods in a way that this becomes a useful step one. It's also incredibly useful because it can be so immediate. As we said before, there's no IRB process that you have here. So if you need to figure out something that happens right away, that you know something's coming, you've got increasingly uh, complex and useful ways of collecting data and sorting through that data in ways that that we couldn't uh, long ago. So, you know, this, this was one that we could do right out, out of the gate and that's nice. And I guess the last thing I would say regarding the advantage of content analysis is because it can then provide the heuristics for setting up some of those methodologies that I mentioned before. Uh, So for instance, years ago, and I I still do some of this work in content analysis, looking at how people of different countries are portrayed within the Olympic telecast. But uh, then beginning in 2012, I took some of that information to start to say, all right, what are the effects of having a nationalized or an overly patriotic newscast? And so now we've started surveying, I've surveyed people in uh, seven different nations to see you know, whether the amount of Olympics they consume uh, ultimately changes their attitudes about patriotism, about nationalism, about internationalism and issues like that. And I think that's that's what content analysis does well. is once you've defined the universe, then you can really apply it, build scales, and find out what are the effects of that data or of that media content in some way that I think can really be useful for understanding the role of media effects in our lives as so, so we spend an increasing amount of time uh, on an increasing number of screens.
0: That was great. Thank you again for joining us. Glad to be here. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give methods a chance.